Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. After years of planning, the big day is finally here. And even though it's been cold, Super Bowl Live on Nicollet Mall has been busy with fans every day and every night. Concerts have been taking place all week long outdoors on the mall. Meanwhile, the Minneapolis Armory opened its doors on Thursday for its first major concert, Imagine Dragons. Organizers hope the 10,000-person venue has a nightclub feel. Fans have been excited to get in and check it out. It's very cool. It brings new life to a part of town that I feel never had anything like this. Pink performed Friday night, and Jennifer Lopez took the stage last night. Just some of the many activities taking place around Super Bowl 52. When the NFL awards a Super Bowl to a community, they want to do more than just have an impact on game day. They want to leave a lasting legacy. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell helped the local Super Bowl host committee present a big check to a middle school in Minneapolis. This school gym might have been as loud as the Super Bowl will be on Sunday. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and Vikings co-owner Lenny Wilf appeared at Anwanton Middle School in Minneapolis to deliver the final and biggest of 52 Super Bowl legacy grants. The $220,000 will be used for a new athletic field and school garden. Again, thank you, kids. Enjoy the field and Skull Vikings! Thank you! Thank you! I can't thank you enough. School principal Ellen Schulman says there's no other way the school could have afforded this. It means a big deal to them to have somebody invest in them to say how important they are and that, and that we value them. Goodell says this will be a key element of every Super Bowl. We want to leave a lasting legacy. We want to leave an impact. And you, all of you, are the lasting legacy. Former Viking E.J. Henderson led kids through some fun drills. <laughs> then Commissioner Goodell took part in a snow-breaking ceremony for the new field. Okay, ready? Here's your turn. And embraced Minnesota winter by playing catch with students yeah. in sub-zero wind chill. <laughs> what are you doing to me? Just laughing it off when he took a spill in the snow. Commissioner, here you go. <laughs> Ready? There you go. Some hand there. Okay, you ready? Here you go. And as you saw, I got to be his ball boy there for just a minute when the ball went over his head. We've been reporting, of course, on the Legacy Fund grants for the past year. Most have been $50,000 grants to schools and organizations all over the state of Minnesota. More than $5 million was raised privately, including $1 million donated by the NFL. And we are pleased to be joined in studio today by Richard Davis, executive chairman of U.S. Bank and one of the co-chairs of the Super Bowl host committee who finally today, maybe today after finally. the game, you can take a deep breath. I'm looking forward to that uh, respite on the other side. It has been three and a half years Correct. of planning. Uh, I have to say I've been at just about every Super Bowl venue in town, in both towns, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and even over in Bloomington. Uh, things have been remarkably well organized. You have to be very pleased with how all of your staff and the volunteers have done. The planning is remarkable. It takes three and a half years to put something together, but the last year is really, it really starts. So uh, a year ago now when... We got the ball from Atlanta. The clock was on. And we started 52 weeks of giving, which I know you just mentioned, our legacy fund, which we're quite proud of. 
That brings you to the 10-day festival that started a week and a half ago on, on Friday, the 26th of January. Bring us to the big day here, which is the kind of exclamation point at the end of a very exciting sentence. And it puts such a spotlight on whatever community hosts a Super Bowl, it puts such a spotlight on that community. And you want things to go well because you want people uh, to have a good impression right. of the Twin Cities. Has that been achieved? Yeah, so here's a couple of thoughts. There's only four NFL franchises of the 32 that are not cities. We're one of the four that's a state not even a region, we're a whole state. And this entire thing was the Minnesota Super Bowl. And I think that's important, Tom, because this was a statewide initiative from those 52 weeks of giving all around the entire uh, state of Minnesota to making a celebration of both Bloomington and using St. Paul, using U of M, and of course Minneapolis for game day. We've really embraced this entire region. It's a real show-off moment for people here. And do you think the NFL, I, I know they like to have the Super Bowl in warmer climates than uh, Minnesota, but right. I, I think it, it is such a nice variation on seeing people at a beach or wherever at a, at a Super Bowl. Uh, where else can you go in an urban area and see people cross-country skiing right. right down the middle of downtown? Very astute. In fact, one in six Super Bowls are urban. We're one of those. And one in six is in cold markets. We're one of those. So it's a very rare moment here. They've been more than pleased. And I'm not going to speak for them exactly, but I know how happy they are. And think about the sponsors. There's a thing called activation where you bring your brand to life. You can only do that so much in sunny, warm weather, but you get a chance to show it off in a different part of the season in a place called Minnesota where we celebrate and really get into the bold north. And now as executive chairman of U.S. Bank, you have to be very pleased with the fact that your company's name is on the stadium. I don't think anybody can question whether or not uh, that investment was worth it, given the fact that I think I've had to say U.S. Bank about 100 times I just so this week I so appreciate alone. that, and I appreciate you always saying that. This was a real rare opportunity. We've been partners as the bank with the Vikings family long before the Wills bought the, the franchise. We were very in intense with the entire Vikings organization from the very beginning in the 60s. And this is a chance for us to say to the entire community, this is one of the largest banks in the nation. We're headquartered here, and we're going to double it down by putting our name on one of the most remarkable buildings probably in, in the world of this type. And sometimes there's criticism about naming rights and the amount of money that companies spend on that. But do you look at this as an investment in the community as well as a way to I market do. your name? I do. In fact, investment first to the employees. With 73,000 employees, I wanted them to know that there is a headquarters for a company of this size, and it's here in Minnesota, and it's a great place to be headquartered from, and all good things come from headquarters. So the first messaging was to them. The second was to the citizens of this great state to enjoy one of the, one of the Fortune 500 companies, being U.S. Bank. And then lastly, this chance to put this on a map. This is an international map we're on, starting with today, especially on game day, where I don't know how many millions of people will be watching from U.S. Bank Stadium this really wonderful opportunity. Well, congratulations on a very well-run Super Bowl 52. Let's hope the game goes off without a hitch. Let's hope it's exciting. I'm so and I know we both it. have our purple on because we're still we're, lamenting. We still really are mourning <laughs> that. But at this time, we're going to show off just how wonderful we can be and welcome our friends from the other markets. Absolutely. Perfect. Richard Davis, co-chair of the uh, Super Bowl host committee and executive chairman of U.S. Bank. Thank you for being here. Thanks, well, you know, the NFL granted Super Bowl 52 to Minnesota back in 2014, even though U.S. Bank Stadium was still under construction. Fortunately, the host committee for Super Bowl 52 didn't face the same problems as the organizers of Super Bowl 9. In 1975, the NFL awarded a Super Bowl to another city with a stadium under construction, but it did not get finished in time for the game between the Vikings and the Steelers. The state of Minnesota is excited to show off U.S. Bank Stadium. This amazing stadium is both beautiful and functional. Most importantly, it's done and ready to host Super Bowl 52. That wasn't the case in 1975. This was the scene captured by a KSTP photographer inside the Superdome in New Orleans, 
two days before Super Bowl IX, when seats were still being installed. The Vikings were supposed to play the Pittsburgh Steelers here. Instead, a decision was made several months before the Super Bowl to move to nearby Tulane Stadium, an aging outdoor facility. It was a dump. It was a tremendous dump. It was cold, dank. That was the first Super Bowl 1500 ESPN radio host Patrick Royce ever covered. Former KSTP sports reporter John Hank looked into why the stadium didn't get finished in time. The stadium, which will hold 75,000 people for Saints football games, has been under construction since August of 1971 and was one of the major reasons for the Super Bowl coming to New Orleans this year. But it wasn't completed. And why wasn't the Superdome completed in time for the Super Bowl? A combination of things. First of all, I think there was a, a misjudgment on the part of the contractors and the architects on how soon they could do it. A Superdome spokesman says labor and weather issues also slowed construction. The Vikings eventually lost to the Steelers in Super Bowl IX. Our reporter mused about whether Minnesota could ever build a stadium like the Superdome. No matter how much money we do spend, it's going to be awfully hard to match the beauty and the splendor of this Superdome. It might even be more difficult to match the beauty and splendor of those pants. It's hard to believe they were fashionable back in 1975, but I vaguely remember that. My older brothers used to wear those. By the way, the Superdome in New Orleans cost $163 million back then. That's about $700 million in today's dollars. More than 40 years later, U.S. Bank Stadium cost $1.1 billion. A new person is now in charge of the Minnesota Health Department. Governor Dayton made the announcement this week that Jan Malcolm will take over. The appointment comes after the former commissioner stepped down after reports about massive backlogs in dealing with complaints about nursing home abuse. I am so sorry for the, the, the pain, the trauma, the, uh, all, the, all of the, dif the difficulties that have been caused. Jen Malcolm has held the position before under Governor Jesse Ventura from 1999 to 2003. Governor Dayton said Malcolm has a track record of turning around health organizations that are doing good work but need improvement on the administrative end. We're less than a year now from Minnesota's governor's race, and the Democrats have raised much more money when it comes to fundraising. Democrat Tim Walls is leading the pack, raising $1.1 million dollars. Former St. Paul Mayor Chris Coleman came in second among Democrats with about $600,000. And then you can see the third place finisher there. As for Republicans, Jeff Johnson took in the most with just about $259,000. Keith Downey has raised $125,000 since entering the race five months ago. And Mary Giuliani Stevens, a little over $71,000. The wide open race to replace Governor Dayton makes those dollars critical as candidates try to raise their profiles and build support statewide. Minnesota Congressman Jason Lewis is recovering from a concussion after a chartered Amtrak train slammed into a garbage truck on Wednesday in Virginia. Representatives Tom Emmer and Eric Paulson were also on the train but were not injured. There were dozens of other Republican lawmakers on board as well. There were no major injuries reported on the train, but one person on the garbage truck was killed. We talked to Congressman Lewis after he was checked out at a Virginia hospital. I think I just had my bell rung pretty good, and I'll be fine. Again, it's, it's not about me or anybody else at this point except the, the, the tragedy and the, and the people who are severely injured, one of which is in the hospital still. 
The chartered Amtrak train was on its way to West Virginia for an, or to Virginia for an annual GOP retreat that was attended by the president and vice president. The retreat went on as scheduled. State officials say they need more money, a lot more money, to make corrections to the Minnesota licensing and registration system known as MinLARS. Top project managers say they need another $43 million to get MinLARS on track this year. The system has been plagued with glitches since its rollout last summer. Officials say if state lawmakers don't approve the funds, they won't be able to get high-priority fixes done until the end of 2020. Some Republican lawmakers say Minlars is being held for ransom and likened the whole situation to a giant goat rodeo. First time I've ever used the words goat rodeo on this program, by the way. We'll be back in two minutes, and our political experts will join us for political analysis. We'll talk more about Minlars, but first we take a look back in time and see how much the media coverage of the Super Bowl has evolved over the decades. You've no doubt seen the massive media coverage of Super Bowl 52 by now, but it hasn't always been this way. This week, I took a look back at how media coverage of the Super Bowl has evolved since the Minnesota Vikings were in the game, as you might recall, a few times in the 1970s. There are 5,800 media credentialed to cover Super Bowl 52. At times, it seems like most of them are crammed between the Pepper Palace and Shake Shack at the Mall of America. We've seen Stephon Diggs, uh, Kirk Cousins, Darren Sproles, a lot of NFL players. I'm really excited to go and just looking around at everybody here. Nancy Frischman of Eden Prairie brought her sons Joe and Danny to the Super Bowl fan gallery. She says it's much different than the 92 Super Bowl in Minneapolis. You would go down to the Metrodome maybe and there was stuff around there, but there was nothing like this. And certainly nothing like the opening night media event on Monday that required the entire XL Energy Center. It is a completely different world, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> this is the world Patrick Royce of ESPN 1500 and the Star Tribune is talking about. His first Super Bowl in 1975, when reporters could watch practice and interview players and coaches on the field. If it was Tarkington, there might be 10 people talking to him. It was, it was completely different. Our KSTP archives show just how easy the access was to even the biggest superstar players, like Fran Tarkenden of the Vikings and Terry Bradshaw and Mean Joe Green of the Pittsburgh Steelers. We like to think that we're good ball players. Trying to be, you know, a great quarterback. Contrast that with Monday night when hundreds of reporters swarmed Tom Brady of the Patriots. We weren't wor wor worried about uh, security. Uh, we didn't bring out the National Guard or anything like that. We just, we trusted our fellow man back then. And, uh, you know, if you were a reporter and had a credential, you could go up and talk to a guy, basically. <laughs> and this is how far we've come. More than 100 radio, television, and Internet sites have been working out at the massive Mall of America shopping mall on so-called Radio Row. The good news for football fans is that they have access to the players out there, but they caution that there have been no autographs available, although when I was out there I did see a few players sneaking an autograph here and there. Now it's time for political analysis, and we're going to talk with former Tim Pelini Communications Director uh, Brian McClung and DFL strategist Darren Broughton. Thank you both for being here. Let's start by talking about the governor's race. We're not going to talk about the great pants and sports coats we saw, <laughs> although your coat there was a little, bit, trying, of a, bring a little it back. bit of a 70s retro, vibe. Retro, Brian. <laughs> a little, little retro. Uh, the fundraising 
your Republican Party, in the governor's race anyway, lags considerably behind the Democrats. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, the Republicans were out fundraised by the Democrat candidates for governor almost five to one, and that's a real concern. We cannot go into this election year with an open seat for governor with those kind of fundraising numbers. I mean, I think the best Republican in the race right now did as well as about the fourth best Democrat who is running. So that's a real concern for Republicans, and I think you're starting to hear from people saying this, this leads us to believe that we ought to have more candidates in the race. And we're going to talk more about your former boss in a moment, but Darren... Uh... 1.1 million for Tim Walls. He leads the entire field. Are Democrats encouraged by these numbers? Democrats are super encouraged by these numbers. And it's not just the gubernatorial race. You also look at the state party as well, who's had its best fundraising ever in an off-year election with the most money on hand as well. Democrats are super excited for 2018. Our gubernatorial candidates, our senatorial candidates, and up and down the ballot. See what he did there? Super excited. Super Bowl Sunday. Sure, you see good. what I'm saying? So now, a uh, lot of speculation. Tim Pawlenty is uh, getting a conclave together of some sort here later this month uh, to talk with some of his advisors about whether or not he should run. Will you be a part of that meeting? And do you think he should run? Yeah, I, th I, I mean, from my perspective, I've said for months, you know, Tim Pawlenty has said that he was politically retired, but retirement is not a permanent state. People come out of retirement. And Tim Pawlenty is considering running for governor. He's going to be meeting with some people in a couple of weeks. He's been talking to people for several weeks now. People have been calling to encourage him to consider running for governor. So from my perspective, he's a great governor. He's been a great governor. He has all the tools. He has big name ID. He can raise money. And he knows how to campaign well. He's a great retail politician. And I would personally love to see him run. Just 20 seconds left. But he does have a long track record. I imagine Democrats would be looking for every vote, every bill he ever signed. Very long track record. Let's also remember that he's gone to Washington and New York to represent big banks. And we all remember how well big banks have played out in the last few years. Also remember that most people would say that the governor, Palenti, was the accidental governor in 2002 and 2006. All right. Because of some interesting times in those election years. We'll talk more about that in future weeks. Darren and Brian, thanks for being here. Face-off is coming up next. We'll talk about President Trump's first State of the Union address from earlier this week. We'll also talk about that Minlar's situation. We'll be back in two minutes. You all share the same home, the same heart, the same destiny, and the same great American flag. During his first ever State of the Union address, President Trump focused on unifying a divided country and asking Congress to work towards bipartisanship, something he says will be needed to pass his 2018 priorities, including fixing the country's infrastructure and immigration systems. There is some irony in what the president said in that State of the Union speech. We'll talk about that with DFL, former DFL party chair Mike Erlinson and Annette Meeks from the Freedom Foundation. Annette, let me start with you, because the irony is he talks about we're a divided nation and we need to unify around the flag. Uh, he has been the one, I think, uh, and I'm saying this impartially, who has done a lot of the dividing. Well, he has, and I think this, this State of the Union was an opportunity to reset. And I think most of the people who watched the State of the Union were very receptive to his message of let's bring people together, let's solve some of the tough problems we've been kicking the can down the road for for a decade, like immigration. Uh, we saw what happened with tax reform and the great benefits that's producing. Let's work together on a bipartisan basis and fix Obamacare, fix the infrastructure. It was a good speech. What are the chances you think he can stick to that message? Well, he started with that message when he started his campaign, right? He was the guy that was going to go to Washington, D.C. and drain the swamp. It turns out he's probably the biggest turd floating in the swamp right now, right? I mean, the good news, I suppose, for the president is stated that unions are not very memorable and people in about two or three days forget about what they heard. 
And so it comes back to how can you unite people when you continue to divide them, right? He divided them further on Friday when he made the decision to release the memo from the Republicans on the FBI thing. We're making an investigation into the president's involvement in the Russian thing into a political football. So it's very disappointing. But Democrats share some of the blame here. They're not exactly, uh, you know, holding an olive branch uh, most of the time. Well, thank you. Most of them that were at the State of the Union look like they were passing a kidney stone. And I don't think that's really the first step towards uh, achieving bipartisanship and, frankly, solving problems, especially some of the big problems that are coming up right away, like the DACA thing and immigration in general. I think they have a lot of big problems. They do well to work together. All right, less than a minute to go. Let's talk about the Minlar system. This has been a thorn in the of the state now since July when it went online. $93 million to build it. Now they want another $43 million to fix it. Uh, Republicans are crying foul. Well, you, you know, people that always cry foul against the administration, if the administration happens to be the other team, in this case it's the Democrats. But, you know, the Minlars thing was started eight or nine or ten years ago the, before Governor Dayton was even in charge. And so, you know, again, we're making a political football of a, out of a problem that just should be fixed. And so that's the challenge for the state. And if it costs money, then they either need to take it from the contractor or they need to fix it. You have the final 20 seconds. I think the first thing they need to do is join the six other states that are suing the contractor before they give them one more dime and, and get recoup some of that $93 million that we've already spent and apparently got nothing for before we pay another $43 million. All right, we're going to hear a lot about that in the legislative session that starts in just a couple of weeks, believe it or not. Mike <laughs> and Annette, thanks for being here. Coming up in 90 seconds, the inspiring night on the football field when wounded military members played against former NFL players. We'll be right back. It was an inspiring night on the gridiron Wednesday when 30 wounded military members took on former NFL players. This is the Wounded Warriors football game in St. Paul. Many of the Warriors lost limbs while fighting for our country and now use prosthetics. That includes retired Wisconsin Marine Jeremy Stengel, who lost part of a leg in Iraq. Playing this game today is a, uh, it's a great positive distraction because... Uh, I don't feel so cut off from the world and I'm around uh, my brothers who have been through similar situations that I have been through. Former Minnesota Vikings Rich Gannon and Sage Rosenfels also played in that game. It was a great event. We like to see what you have to say about Ad Issue. Send us your feedback and let us know what issues you'd like to see on the show. Just write to Issue at KSTP.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for my name, Tom Hauser, or Ad Issue. You can also find me on Twitter at T Hauser KSTP. And you can now listen to episodes of that issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links posted on our website. Just head to at issue page at kstp.com. And we hope you've enjoyed this Super Bowl pregame show. That is all the time we have for now. We hope to see you back here again next week for another edition of At Issue. <laughs>